And greetings, everyone, to the Wisdom Keeper podcast. This is Dr. Miles Neal, and I am with a distinguished guest, senior Buddhist psychotherapist, tanka painter, and prolific author of Buddhism and Tantra, Rob Priest from the UK. I've been on a little bit of a hiatus recently from the podcast as I write my book, Return with Elixir, which is a coalescing of themes Rob is no stranger of, Jung, Tibetan Buddhism, and Joseph Campbell. So I'm very delighted to have such esteemed and senior mentor figure to join us to elucidate some of the themes that run through each of our work and our book and our books. Uh, Rob is coming out very soon with a a latest addition to a, a long series, so we'll, we'll get into his work. Um, but but first, let me say thank you so much, Rob. You're a certainly one of the more you know uh, senior ex- experts on the on the uh, relationship between Buddhism and psychology, and particularly tantra. And uh, you've you've really done a great service, offering us a number of books including the psychology of Tantra, and um, which I think is really so necessary to, 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 to create the ground. You've done an exhaustive uh, service in your book series by really elucidating and paving the way in a very slow and systematic way, which I think off too often there's this leap into Tantra, and I think you've done a great service to giving us the, the most you know, patient and sustained entry into Tantra, especially with this uh, notion of really understanding the Western psyche and our own individual particular needs. So I just want to start by saying thank you for your career and your life's work, really dedicating. It's a niche, really, and I'm sure, you know, with the blessings of the great lamas like Lama Yeshe, this ended up being your calling, and it's it's a really beautiful gift to the world. So thank you so much, and thank you for making some time to join us on the Wisdom Keeper podcast. Well, thank you, Miles. I really appreciate that, and it's nice to meet you as well. Let's okay. let's see where we go today. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's see where our collective unconscious and our uh, personal unconsciousness take us. Well, I'll, I usually start the Wisdom Keeper podcast by just sort of giving a little context to my my aspiration, if you will, with the, with the podcast, which is the, the most broadest level. I see that our culture is going through a sea change. Sometimes I use astrology to delineate that we're between epochs, between what is often called the Piscean and the Aquarian age. This is a very helpful way to understand that we're amidst a much, a lot of turmoil, but that there's actually a reason for it. This is this is a time where there's a great dissolving of a, of one mandala and a, and a, and, a, and an opportunity to participate in the creation of a new one, at, at its most global level. And so, my hope is to bring in wisdom keepers who can help guide us during this transition, offering their expertise in a very uh, multifaceted and multi-dimensional way. Some people come from the esoteric traditions. People like you are psychology and Tantra. I've had astrologers also, um, and people that can also bring a lot of myth, mythopoetics, and Mm. of course, prophecy. And one way I like to start the conversation is to just offer you one point, one little quote for a point of reflection to get us kind of warmed up, which is, it's very, it's a simple, but can be profound quote, which is, in order to go forward, sometimes we have to go back. Your thoughts on that, Rob? 
Yes, that, that could be taken on so many different levels, couldn't it? I mean, as a, as a therapist, I would guess part of the going forward is recognizing those things from my past, my history, that I need to resolve in order to go forward. So that kind of fits in that sense. I think on another level, there's no doubt that we can draw on the the kind of evolving process that's happened over many centuries of a of a tradition like the Buddhist tradition and draw on that, but need to see how it unfolds and moves forward. So it's something about really respecting and recognizing the value of what what's been there in the past and bringing that into a context that actually opens it out in perhaps new ways and some people will be comfortable with that some people may not so comfortable with that but it feels as though it's part of the journey yeah and I, when i look at your your work and i'd like to get into the origin story or what in the tibetan tradition is called the namtar the biography but i, I mean yeah. i see you as someone who like a little like myself um you have respected greatly the tradition but you've also made innovation and so that I think is speaks to the heart of this quote, which is in, in some way, yeah, yeah, there is a looking back and a respect. You've been really well blessed to be around the, some of the greatest lamas. Absolutely, you, yeah. And Absolutely. you made, and you made efforts, great efforts, probably with a lot of humility to learn precisely as they taught. But at some juncture, and we'll get through this, like what led up to it, at some juncture, you also brought in something new and something fresh. And, and maybe Lama Yeshe really encouraged that. And, yeah. and that's how we get this prolific outpouring of integrative work that you've, the body of work that you've offered. Yeah. So maybe, maybe we, can, we can go back to, you know, the, the origins of, yeah. of your life story. I mean, I, I'm interested in if you could take us, you know, briefly up into, you know, your childhood that brings us maybe some salient points in the beads in the mala that bring you up to meeting Lama Yeshe, because that's such a, I'm sure, a very pivotal point of your life. What yeah. might have led up to that? What were you looking for? How did you find him? How did you meet? What, what, what kind of, you know, as we look at later, we might talk about Jung. And if you look yeah. at Jung, you start digging in Jung's volumes, you start to see how impactful his early childhood it was in terms of his his thinking and his later maturation process so i think this is another way of talking about going back in order to go forward yeah i mean i wouldn't say there was anything um particularly grand about my childhood <laughs> in fact in some senses it's almost the opposite i i think there were there were certain seminal experiences for me one of them particularly in my late teens early 20s where i had what could be described as a breakdown you know and it was partly marijuana induced um but as a result of that or at the same time as that it was when i began to meet both tibetan buddhism and Jung, and it was the combination of those two elements and two perspectives beginning to to come together that enabled me to get through that and come out the other side of it and I left university. I'd been studying psychology at university and left and began to travel. And there was some very strong, in, this was the hippie days in hippie travel. And there was some very strong instinct in me that was heading east. And in the process of that began to, to draw on the, the experiences that I was going through as I was traveling, eventually arriving in Thailand 
and Nepal, where I met Lama Yeshe and Lama Zopa at Kopan in Nepal in 1973, I think it was, two or three. Mm-hmm. And something felt then as though I'd kind of come home in a sense. It was like arriving at somewhere that something in me knew instinctively, this was a place I needed to come back to. And and from that point onwards, I think the guidance of Lama Yeshe in particular was incredibly supportive of the fact that somewhere in this process, in that journey, I had met these two aspects of two paths, if you like, or two two perspectives, both Jung and Tibetan Buddhism. And he was very supportive of pursuing both, actually. So it wasn't like he was saying that Tibetan Buddhism is the only thing if you have you know, he, he was very supportive of that understanding that there are other perspectives that could be brought in here to the point where um, I came back from that first visit to Nepal and a group of us gathered together to start a centre in the north of England with the idea of him coming over with Lama Zopa and beginning to teach. And it was in 1976, I think, that eventually that was formed and he came over. And interestingly, the first time he came to visit, he was going to teach the Manjushri Tantra. And when he arrived, he brought with him a woman from Switzerland who was a Jungian analyst. So the, the, the you know, this sort of the threads of these two things began to weave together. So mm-hmm. she was teaching a material on Jungian sand play, and he was teaching this tantric practice. And he wow. would come to the teachings, he would come to Dora Kalf's classes and then when he went back to teach the the Manjushri Tantra he was referring to some of the language that she was using about the unconscious about masculine feminine shadow these kinds of words began to enter into into his vocabulary in a really interesting way and you know his, his English wasn't brilliant but he could really convey an understanding or, or an insight into certain things and he would draw on this language sometimes in a way that just affirmed for me that this was a there was a validity to beginning to bring these two worlds together and it was then in subsequent meetings with him that he affirmed the idea that i'd said to him i'd really like to to study jungian work jungian psychology and he said yeah why not it it would be very um useful alongside your buddhist understanding so it was very supported by him it's an incredible acknowledgement of the open-mindedness. Yeah. And it reminds me a little bit of Trungpa, possibly, when he was at Naropa in the early days, just having engaged dialogue, cross-cultural and interdisciplinary dialogue. Yeah. And that, you know, we often don't see the lamas as, like, hungry for new knowledge, but it is part of the biography of the His Holiness the Dalai Lama, even, too. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And when he met Bob Thurman, I mean, my teacher Bob Thurman often tells of when they first met young men, the two mm-hmm. of them, how interested the Dalai Lama was in Bob Thurman's academic background and philosophy, Western philosophy, pop culture, even. I mean, it, it's just, it's a, it's a wonderful endorsement of the, you know, the open-minded willingness to engage. Yeah. And, and, and I, I do truly believe that willingness is motivated purely by this bodhicitta, because I think they, what they really saw was if we're, I mean, I really, I imagine that they saw this as the first opportunity to engage with another culture and Mm. they came not to impose but 
to to be willingly participate in our mm-hmm. culture. And I mean, I just imagine the kind of warmth and affection Lama Yesha showed you. And I, just give mm-hmm. us another little taste, because uh, yeah. I never got to meet him. And I, you know, right. I was I was right. a student of Lama Zopa, and, and more recently yeah. Gesh, Geshe Tenzin Zopa. Yeah, I all, I too got a chance to got got my start at Copan in two thousand and six, much much longer yeah. time yeah. than you. But um, give us a sense of the first meeting and the character, the nature, the playfulness, or whatever it might have been with Lama Yeshe. What and I'm I'm sure in these early days you had a lot of access. I mean, oh yeah, 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 that was very significant. I mean, I think you know a a, a course or a class would maybe have. 70 to 100 students in it as opposed to thousands these days so you know there, there was much more of that closeness of relationship and i i think i think it was there was such a a genuine sense of love and appreciation for us as westerners and some very kind of intuitive understanding of how we are that i'm not sure all tibetans necessarily automatically have and that's no judgment of them but you know, he had some very strong instinct for how he he could communicate to us. And I think probably one of the most significant things that he would do is it, there was a lot of affirmation of us trusting in our own inner wisdom. You know, there, there was a phrase he would often use, which was, "You." Tr-, I'd ask him a question about something, and he would say, you trust in your inner knowledge wisdom, dear, you would say. <laughs> And and there were phrases like that that were very kind of pithy phrases that really got in in a way that was very affirming of our natural potential. And I think probably of all the lamas that I've studied with at that time, he was someone that was always wanting to remind us that in us right now is this innate Buddha potential. And there was something about that constant affirmation was was very important actually yeah, yeah. And I, when he i had a beautiful gift in that actually there is this beautiful thing about the guru principle that is both the need for the external principle the, mm. the external guy that is qualified with the endowments yeah but as you suggest it also is a mirror somehow the lama's main objective is to remind you that what you're seeing and seeking is also within but it's but you need both, right? I mean, it is it's it's a it's it's a wonderful play of like seeking a llama. I mean, do you ever sit back now and think like what a complete blessing? Oh yeah, to have met such yeah. an esteemed, significant teacher in my yeah. lifetime at a time that seems very critical. I mean, even if I might just pick a little bit at yeah. your your mental breakdown at as a teenager was was it teens or early 20s it was early 20s yeah Mm. i mean maybe there's something there that's worth mining a little bit because i'm sure Mm. both of us receive clients in the midst of that kind of ordeal Mm. but as you look back and you connect the dots it's often those ordeals that out of that the way that you relate to that and the way that you go through that ends up being so significant. There is a connection between that mental breakdown, the impetus to go seeking the finding the Lama. And then somehow that the Lama reflects back to the student exactly what they needed, what they're looking for. Mm. I mean, when, when that happens, I think it's very special. I think that there is a sort of, health warning in that too which is that sometimes it doesn't happen 
and that sometimes the teachers, or the lamas, whatever, can have edges to them that are not always helpful. So let's let's not paint the totally rosy picture because we know that we've got a history over over the recent years of experiences where lamas haven't been entirely there for us in the way that we may have needed needed it. So I, I think, yes, you're right. There's something about that relationship which reflects something back when it works well. Mm. And and the question then, I think, and I think this is where Lama was quite extraordinary, Lama Yeshi was quite extraordinary. He was always wanting to, to support us to find that in ourselves rather than keep projecting it out there. Mm. So his whole emphasis was, was in a way, don't keep projecting the Lama thing onto him, find your own inner relationship to it. And and again, that was very affirming of something because I think it it made certainly for me personally, it made me aware that I had to take some responsibility for this process in myself and not keep putting it out there to, to lean on the outer guru, as it were. And of course, in a way, that was a really useful bit of information because within the space of 12 years he died. Mm. You know, so I could I could have been caught up in something where I was desperately um, clinging to the Lama, dependent upon him in some way, mm. and then he died. And you know, I think for me, I had I had huge gratitude for his willingness to say that we shift from outer guru to inner guru, and then of course we can move deeper. Um, and when he died, something became. Um, reaffirmed in a different way it was as though there was a different relationship there that wasn't so dependent upon the outer person but by then i think i'd got the message from him of how to be with this practice that i was involved in and how to bring it forward so i feel really grateful for that you know it wasn't long it wasn't a long period only as i say 12 years or so 12 13 years but in that time i got enough of a sense of how he saw this path and how he would have seen it in relationship to us as Westerners, to 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 really trust in that. I think he was he had certain insights into how this could manifest for us in the West as Westerners, that he was able to convey in certain ways. And maybe because I had, I think I had quite a good relationship to him. He said to me once, "We have good communi- good communication, dear." He said, <laughs> and, and there was a real sense, that, yes, okay. I get that. And and when he died, that sort of continued in a way. Mm. And what I think there were a number of ingredients in that which were really important for me. One was that we needed to find a way to work with this path that was appropriate and useful for us as Westerners, that we can't necessarily assume that in its traditional form, it's exactly what we need. He was quite unorthodox, you know, and his views were quite unorthodox which sometimes I think was not easy for his relationship to other Tibetans. So that was one thing. The other thing, and this related particularly to the Tantra tradition, he saw it as a creative process and was very alive and, and dynamic with it in a way that was, was, again, very rich and very inspiring. He wasn't, he wasn't necessarily st- staying with a, a rigid sense of this is the tradition, this is the form. He was coming from a place of this is the tradition and this is how we can work with it in a in a more crea- in a creative way that that means that we can enable it to become something for our Western experience. Mm. And I remember him saying once, 
you know, maybe there'll be Italian Buddhism, there'll be, you know, American Buddhism, there'll be uh, Danish Buddhism and so on. It was as though he was saying, we need to find the flavor that works for us. And, and that's going to be different for so many of us. Yeah, that's so beautiful. And I love that, those little nuggets of insight. I'd like to just ask, you know, now yeah. we're in this. So you had about a 12-year relationship with him? Yeah, yeah. At what point do you think you turned the corner and really understood this principle of the guru is actually within and it's up to me to rely on myself? At what yeah. point in the training? And had you already received a tantric initiation prior to that? Or did oh, he yeah. wait? And did he was it a sort of prerequisite that he knew your mind and your development and knew when it would really take? We, we, we had many of us in those early years had certain tantric initiations relatively quickly, although some traditions still bring people in very quickly. Um, Lama brought a number of particular Lamas to meet us Westerners, so to speak. He brought Song Rinpoche to, to the UK and he gave certain initiations. And then there was a gathering in Dharamsala in 1980 where he brought together His Holiness and again Song Rinpoche. And I think there was Lingra, I, I can't remember all the, all the Lamas that were there. There were about four or five different high Gelupalamas giving empowerments. And he, he kind of created this context where we could receive them and then receive a lot of teachings around them. So it was as though he was he was endorsing um, our relationship to the, these very high Lamas. Mm. He, he didn't put himself in that role, interestingly. It was as though he was the shepherd, you know, that was shepherding, shepherding us along to these extraordinary beings that were still alive and well at that time and within the space of probably four years or five years many of them had died mm. so we we're incredibly fortunate to get those teachings and i think some of the some of the very special teachings i received were then so i can't quite remember what your question was but i think um we were brought into some of these things quite early um what i think became necessary then was for him and Lama Zopa to begin to help us find our way with them, which wasn't all that easy because it's complex and and we were a bit naive. It wasn't in English, a lot of it. So we were having to, to translate it into English and, and learn something that was very, um, very odd, <laughs> very unusual, should we say, it, you know, it, it's complex, it's unusual. And we were, we were beginning to, to, to find we were given this material and, and start to, to work with it. And certainly for me, I think in the early years of that, the way I practiced was very traditional. You know, it was working with traditional long sadhanas and this sort of thing. And, and as I was doing that, um, I went into long retreat. Did you, have, did you have the Nongdro and the Lamrim before? Did you have extensive preparations? Yeah. Or do you feel like he Absolutely. just went right into it? No, it, it, we were given those initiations. But behind that was the message, you know, the Lamrim and the various sutra teachings are really important for us to study. So we did, or many of us did. And the beginning of the Nundro was part of that. So that was the sort of package in a way. There was all the sutra teachings on Majjhimika philosophy and Bodhicherry Avatara and Lamrim and those kinds of things. We received these initiations. We were given certain teachings around them, but often supported to then do Nundra. So that was my, that was the package that I was working with. 
Yeah. So it's not, it's not linear. It was sort of concurrent. You had, you know, just very much in the Tibetan spirit. It's like, Oh, you got to take the initiation. You have these great llamas here. You better get that beautiful blessing, but at the same time, don't lose, don't lose your connection with the ground. Yes, exactly. I mean, I think what you're saying about not being linear is a really interesting one because in some senses, the message that I was given by the way some of the Geshe's teach is that it's quite linear. You know, you you develop this and you practice this. And, but the way Lama Yeshe and His Holiness actually tend to, tended to teach this to us, it was like, you need to know the whole package and then you work, you, you keep circulating around it. Mm. So you come back to the land and you come back to those foundations. You do some Nundra, you do maybe a deity practice then you can come back. You're circling around, yeah. in a sense, growing the whole process rather than a linear process. And I, I, I think that was very helpful, actually. It's a beautiful image of a circumambulation. It is, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And and for for each of us, we may really orientate to one facet of that, one one part of that, and others to another. Mm-hmm. So it's though so it also it also facilitates that sense of of individual differences. You know. That, I was really drawn to tantric practice. That was where my heart was, and and so it was. It felt very natural to me, and maybe the Jungian thing has supported that actually. So it mm. felt very natural to go in that direction. Well, there's such. Ri- I, I'm I'm popping like popcorn now with questions. I, I you know, <laughs> we're we're in your biography. We're just about to go into retreat, so maybe we. No. I just want to ask you to take a step back and sort of describe in. The best way you can, personal way, what tantra is, what it represents, what it's, and then and then sort of maybe the more traditional presentation. Take as long as you want, and Mm -hmm. and make it as rich as you want. Um, But then maybe we can contrast it with what actually, yeah, Lama encouraged in terms of this creativity or this personalization, because I think that's a beautiful, yeah, yeah, yeah. that's a beautiful dance right there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a big. That's a big topic. <laughs> um, gosh, I, I almost feel tempted to come to what's the essence of tantra and then backtrack a bit. Perfect. Um, because how tantra has been brought to Tibet and then to the West over centuries, it's it's changed its shape almost inevitably, um, and as it changes its shape, it's possible that it, we could lose sight of. So what's at the core of this? And and I think there's something that, again, Lama Yeshe would remind me of this, but there's something about what I, I guess I'd really discovered this partly in my own retreats. What What is at the heart of all of this began to be much clearer to me. And, and I suppose a simple way of putting that would be the recognition that we have this energetic nature, the, the energy wind body, that is central to both mind and physical body as a as a component that is always alive and dynamic in our life and that that manifests itself in a number of different ways if you like as symptoms or whatever one being our emotional life our creative life our sexual life you know this this energy body in our being is is so um central to so many different elements of who we are in our life and that it's the it's the ingredient that is the primary root of transformation within tantric practice so it's like saying if we if we recognize the nature of this energetic process 
and all of the different ways it affects us both if you like in a healthy way and in maybe a detrimental way if we recognize how that works then we can put that into a process that begins to transform and heal and purify if you want to use that language i'm not always comfortable with that but to transform it into its into its innate vibrant nature mm. yeah mm. and that the practices of tantra could be there's a many diverse practices of tantra in a sense at the heart of them is going to be this alchemical process of transforming the energy body mm. as we do that it affects the mind and that also has an effect on the physical body so it it links those three things together mind physical body yeah so we're so, talking about uh hacking into the substructure the most yeah the the, subtle, sub the subtlest energy form that underlies all of our neuroses but also connects mind and bodies yeah. is the is the bridge between mind and body so um, we're talking about working at a very very subtle level well yes very subtle but actually we know it's not that so if i'm angry and there's energy there it's not so subtle mm. so it's not that it's always subtle there's a spectrum it, there's very subtle and there's relatively gross mm. it's present in in that spectrum and we could say that that in my day-to-day -day life that energy energy body is very active dynamic often quite disturbed it could be full of all sorts of emotional responses if i refine it and transform it i begin to backtrack to its most subtle level which is its innate buddha nature so what what we're starting to see then is that in our day-to-day -day experience of that energy body it's the same stuff so to speak yeah that as we transform it becomes our innate buddha buddha body the energy body of our buddha nature well, let's let's slice that on the light table. I mean, if I if I'm really <laughs> irritated or angry, yeah, okay, I may be maybe just just aware that of a of a narrative of somebody doing something to me. Maybe yeah. I'm aware of that. Sure. Give us the the workshop work workshop us down to this level of the Buddha nature. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So so we start to to recognize the presence of, of quite a strong energetic movement that we could call anger or frustration or it could be sadness something we start to recognize the energetic nature of that not just as a emotional process but actually how we feel it in the body as as we start to be with that we can enable it to move in a different way slightly we help we help we give it the space to begin to be free to transform to to kind of move through as it moves through it can become more subtle because it it stops being in that in that kind of reactive place and begins to settle into something that's more subtle that in itself enables us to settle we regulate if you like to use that language more self-regulated it becomes more subtle we can start to see into a more subtle level of its nature that gets refined so we're we're backtracking towards something that is deep, subtle, and potentially very um, potent in our nature. That's our Buddha potential. I don't know. It's a very brief. <laughs> I mean, I see. I see both the wisdom aspect, but also the embodiment aspect. Yes, it's there. So we're yeah. really talking about refining clear yeah. perspective, a clarity, the clear yeah. na clarity nature. Yeah. 
but then it's also directly creating a container or a holding space yeah. for the processing yeah. of actual embodied emotions yeah exactly so we start to embody it more in more and more subtle ways yeah and and as a as a transformation process we could say that's at the heart of tantric practice and we could also say maybe that 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 is the wisdom wing and the compassion wing right there because we so, yeah. have the, the clarity aspect and which is one of the hallmarks of tantra as i've understood it is it is a simultaneous training in wisdom and compassion, whereas maybe sutra might be subsequent or yeah. sequential. When mm -hmm. you're practicing tantra, you're practicing wisdom, the clarity mm -hmm. aspect, you're developing the clarity or view aspect simultaneous yeah. with the embodiment aspect or the compassion aspect, the ability to hold or regulate, as you say. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and, and there's there's another ingredient in that which I think is also really important, and, and this distinguishes tantra from maybe the, the classical sutra context. Within a lot of our sutra teachings, the way we respond to emotional processes is that we often put them in this box of its delusion or its afflictive emotion or it's something that needs to be abandoned. Mm. Renunciation, yeah. right. The, yeah, the, the notion that when when strong delusion or emotion arises, we see it as something that needs to be overcome, abandoned, and and in a sense, we try and live with keeping it out of our system, so it's not. Sadly, and I think this was my experience. When I do that, what I do is repress it. Well, I was just going to say, maybe Jung would have a lot to say about that. Right? Exactly. exactly. So <laughs> Jung would say, yeah, that's great, but you're going to create a shadow. Yeah. And, and a rebound. And actually, you're going to give it a lot more charge and a lot more power. Yeah. And so I think that's how I dealt with my emotional life in the early years, because I didn't really comprehend another way of doing it. Now, with with the combat, well, with, with the tantric process, what we're saying is, Rather than seeing these things are acceptable and we should cultivate and these things we don't, they're not acceptable. We should purify or, or avoid, you know, abandon them. With the tantric process, we're saying everything, all that we are, we put into that alchemical process because it can transform and be liberated into its pure nature. So there's no, discern no discrimination or judgment that says, sorry, you can't include that bit of yeah. you. Yeah. Everything. So the, the worst bits of me, <laughs> you know, the nasty bits, are part of the transformational process rather than something that has to be abandoned and got rid of. They transform. Yeah, and so they transform because at the, the core of them is an energetic nature which can be liberated. Hmm. Yeah. I hear you say alchemy, alchemy, alchem alchemize, yeah, I can't, I can't help but um, pause here as we develop the narrative of your, you know, tantric experience heading into retreat. Also, maybe now we could bring in Jung because mm -hmm. you studied Jung and and Tibetan Buddhism concurrently, and yeah, yeah. Maybe you can pause and hop onto that other parallel track and kind of give us a glimpse of what you already digested from Jung and how he already may have made an impression on you before you went into retreat or as you were studying these things is there anything you can say about you know Jung as opposed to all the other plurethra of yeah. psychological mode modes or or worldviews why why Jung what it what it was about Jung that was so impressive and how Jung influenced particularly the, this nexus point with Tantra because I think it's so so rich 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think there are there are a number of key ingredients, I suspect. Mm-hmm. Um, one of them, I suppose, for me personally, I was always interested in symbolic, metaphorical, mythical, you know, archetypal stuff because I, I've always been a, a painter or artist or whatever and very drawn to symbolic m- material you know so that was always part of my background and when I began to read Jung's exploration of that I began to see that, okay this comes from a deeper place in our psyche in the unconscious as he called it so that was one thing that, that really resonated for me and when I then met the Tibetan tradition I went I went into a sort of meditation space or a temple or whatever and yeah. there were all these archetypes it was like wow they, they've really got it yeah. something just made a connection there and i remember jung once jung once saying i didn't hear him say this um i remember reading jung say that in the east they you know in the west we are drawn to fantasy and imagination in a particular way in the east they have turned that into a religion mm. Yeah, and and I really I could see what he meant there that our our relationship and, and that that wasn't a critique that was an honorific that was a yeah, it was, that, absolutely. as opposed to maybe Freud who thought it would be maybe opium or you know, you know <laughs> a, a regressive a yeah. regressive stance yeah exactly yeah whereas Jung I think really honored it I'm not sure that he would have seen the depth of Tibetan Buddhism as we can today. So that was one ingredient, that sense of there is an archetypal world that is profound, that is affecting us all the time, and that comes through our creative life and our dream life and so on. And I think that had so many parallels with meeting a deity and thinking, wow, this really touches me somewhere very deeply. That bit was important. I think the other bit was recognizing that the the unconscious, when he talked about the unconscious, because they don't speak of the unconscious within the Buddhist world, but that paradigm of, of an unconscious, I think, is really helpful in terms of recognizing that, say, for example, there are elements of our nature that we can't access. They're veiled from us. And therefore, we could say they're unconscious or they're in the unconscious. And that that sort of gives us another view on. So why am I not able to access my Buddha nature? Because it's in the unconscious. It's unconscious. It doesn't mean to say it's not there but we don't have access to it so that view sort of makes sense in a way um the other thing of course was the thing you've just said the shadow you know that his understanding of there being this level of of material but beneath consciousness in the unconscious enables us to understand why we get overwhelmed with stuff coming from within or we push it down and suppress it that relationship to material in the unconscious is such a useful understanding that comes from Jung, actually. And as a Buddhist, that actually is very helpful. You know, it's not I'm, Buddhist I'm, language. It's not I'm Buddhist very much resonating with this because as I write the book, uh, Return with the Elixir, I, I've, I've really come to appreciate Jung's unique stance on the unconscious, given the fact that he had a departure from Freud the unconscious is almost demonized in a Freudian way. It's like the, it's the, it's the place that is tripping us up. Yeah, it's the place where everything is kind of to be abandoned, to be to be overcome, or, or relegated into a you yeah, know, relegated. But, yeah. 
But I think Jung's biography really shows that he turned himself over to the unconscious, that he was he allowed himself to be flooded by the unconscious, guided by the unconscious is probably yeah. a better way that he yeah. in a way he abandoned control. This is sort of a, a egoic autonomy control mechanism and let himself go free fall into the unconscious. And I liked what you just said there because it really shows, I mean, I have this quote, it's like the pearl is in the oyster. Another way of saying mm-hmm. it is the treasure is in the cave. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. The thing that we don't want to touch, the unbearables, the unspeakables, the nasty, ugly bits, we could call it the traumas, we could call it the wounds. They remain unconscious because we can't really process them. We don't have enough self-regulatory support or safety and whatever the preconditions might be. But if we do have that bravery or that courage or that support, if the ingredients are there to go into the unconscious and also face some of the things that freeze us, paralyze us, calcify us, there is also this possibility of connecting with the Buddha nature or the light or the clarity or the fluidity Mm. the dynamic Mm. aspect or quality of the mind and i've i've continually thought about you can't have one without the other yes exactly in other words you can't get to the treasure without going into the cave you can't have the pearl without the darkness of the oyster and so it's an it's an invitation it is And, and as you say it requires a certain level of willingness to go into that to to explore that something Jung again I think this is a quote of Jung he said you don't become awakened by visualizing yourself as in bodies of light you trans you you become awakened by transforming the shadow now that could sound a bit contradictory to what we do as Buddhists but mm-hmm. nevertheless I think his point was we have to deal with the shadow we have to we have to to transform it awaken it and which I think leads to another another question, which is, so can we assume that our Buddhist practice will automatically do that? Mm. You know, I think there is one of your questions was, I think, you know, do we need some, do we need more than just Buddhism? Um, you know, is there value in, in bringing in a psychological element to our Buddhist practice? And I really think there is. And that was certainly that was my experience that, that I had been practicing for many years and began to realize there was stuff I really wasn't working with and dealing with. I was, it's almost like I was putting a veneer of two things. One was a kind of veneer of practice over the top of it. The other was a veneer of spiritual correctness. I was a very good Buddhist, so to speak, with a big shadow. <laughs> so, you know, there's lots of stuff that was quite hidden. But on the surface, I might look like a you know, good Buddhist. And, and I think for me, that meant that I really recognized that my Buddhist practice was giving me a certain level of experience and understanding. But I also needed to work with the stuff that was psychologically difficult for me to address. Yeah, and I think this is very rich because it begs the question, you know, like if you're saying the traditional approach of Tantra is an alchemy mm. of the unconscious, of the aspects of ourselves where, you know, the basic stance is that everything is permitted, everything mm. can be transformed, you can access it, there's nothing to be rejected, yeah. everything can be accessed mm. and brought into the mandala. Yep. Yeah. And all five aggregates become 
let's mm-hmm. say the deities mm-hmm. these five primordial buddhas are the alchemical buddhas sometimes i call them that yeah, if yeah. that's true then why is it that some westerners or some of us in the first and second and third wave generations of exposure to tibetan tantra actually feel the need for something more or different or something else in conjunction with in in um you know it, it what is it about us yeah, quite. <laughs> right? I mean, because I, I've had this conversation with sociologists and anthropologists. Mm-hmm. I have a bit of a I have a bit of a suspicion that we're particularly unique in frag in our fragmentation and as, a, as an industrialized culture. We've mm-hmm. lost a lot of community. We've lost, we've had our attachment yep. severely um severed or interrupted. Our development mm-hmm. has been stagnated as a result. This is probably a little unique to us in our industrialized way. And maybe indigenous cultures had much more community, had much more nurturing, had much more closer bonds. That starts to sound a little idealistic. Some of the anthropologists I've talked to said that may may not be the case. But I think you and I both share this sense that there may, it's it's not hubris for us to suggest there may be something uniquely fragmented about us or that we actually need something specific or particular would you, you let's start with would you agree with that and what do you think that is and what are the yeah. origins around it I, I i would agree and and i'd put a sort of little footnote in that which is that it's very hard for me to 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 judge if that's the right word the difference between me as a westerner and a tibetan you know i i very seldom have i felt i could sit down with a tibetan and have them talk about their internal process in the way that we might do in the West, emotionally, psychologically. So it's very difficult for me to know go- what goes on for them. Especially, especially the lamas. I mean, how, how, how many of them disclose? I mean, it's not it's a it's not typical of their culture. And then also that hierarchy yeah, yeah, makes yeah. it very very difficult to get a read on what actually their experience is. Exactly, and and there's no judgment in that in the sense of of no criticism necessary. It's just they're they're culture and their whole education is so different whereas in the west we do have i think certain pressures psychologically as we grow up that impact us and the environment and the and the stresses of our of our lifestyle impact us very strongly we know that and the kind of emotional wounding and trauma we use that word a lot these days is very present in us now do tibetans have that i don't know they well, may do. on the face of it i mean if your whole culture has been genocided well, you and, 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 and displaced, you'd yeah. imagine that there was significant trauma. Yeah, but, I mean, what what has your experience been living with the Tibetans in Dharamsala or going to you know South India and being amongst them? I mean, what has your yeah. actual experience been? And then that begs the question: What's going on? It does. It does absolutely. And I, and I I really can't gauge because of course when I was living there, it was quite I was quite isolated. I was in retreat most of the time, so I wasn't living with tibetans day to day um and the tibetans i did have a, have a connection to would not communicate very much about that process so they were geshes or they were monks or whatever so they weren't talking about how you know i'm traumatized that i'm you know emotionally disturbed that wasn't their language so there's a language difference in that but i do think we don't know and and i think as time passes we could probably see more that there is more emotional wounding with Tibetans than we knew in the past. But I think your question is about us as Westerners. And I really think that 
it's we have grown through a different process where the, the need for psychological understanding and the the roots of our emotional wounding need to be addressed there's a there's a de- developmental process for us in the west that we understand psychologically is really important for us and really significant for us it's not even part of buddhist language really yeah, there isn't a developmental map for the psychological process in in buddhist language it's a western notion that is so helpful for for us because it enables us to see the evolution of how our ego is shaped in a particular way and the kind of wounding that happens and trauma and so on so with that understanding it it was very clear to me personally that i needed to do some other work as well and and what i think has grown out of that is the recognition that that isn't to say that there isn't within buddhism a massive amount of ways of practice that can't help that emotional and psychological process but they need to be brought together in in a skillful way you know so that they actually address our emotional processes Mm -hmm. so to begin with when i was doing tantric practice there was no relationship between the practices that i was doing and me psychologically as a westerner that they sort of could almost miss each other Mm -hmm. one or two bits of that that i think were really significant Many of us in the West, and I would include myself in this, are quite disembodied. Mm. Yeah, that sense of dissociation and disembodiment is not good for tantric practice because tantric practice is about the body and the energy body. So, in order for me to begin to to practice tantra, I'm needing to come back into relationship with body process. That means I'm coming back into all of that emotional wounding territory. How do I work with that? Do I assume the tantric practices will naturally work with it? Some of them may. And if I know how to apply it in a certain way, it may help it. But I may need some support around it from someone that knows how to work with emotional processes as well. We need to bring those worlds together. And I think that's what you've done with your with your work. I mean, I think you're talking about the need for multiple maps that can link. Yeah. Because- you're talking about an energy map, an alchemical map that comes from the Tibetan tradition, but you're also saying that in the tradition there is perhaps a, an absence of a developmental understanding or sensitivity that is particularly relevant to us as Westerners. Yeah, yeah. So the merging of these two maps allow that sort of create a land bridge for the application. Yeah, yeah, to be, yeah. To be as relevant to our particular needs. Absolutely. And, yeah. you know, I have to say that sometimes I find that the lamas, I mean, truly for as wonderful and as, you know, exquisite their mm. mind is, sometimes mm. there's a little bit of a naivete. About us. About us, yes. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. particularly, I mean, both you and I have are made our living receiving people who are meditators and yogis and people that have come out of scandals in Sangha and have had sometimes a hard go with the lamas. And, you know, without, I mean, it's worth, it's worth noting that, you know, sometimes, you know, there can be real trauma there and the recipe or the remedy is to do more mantra or to do more prostration. (laughs) And, you know, without being blasphemous, I think, but it can, you know, it can, my pushback has always been, that may not be the right tool for the job. Yeah, exactly. 
absolutely or or we need to maybe use that tool in a very different way hmm. as well you know i mean i'll give you a good example of that i i really love the practice of vajrasattva hmm. as a, as a as a process of meditation where we are kind of cleansing and we could use that practice as a purification practice or we could use it as a healing practice Mm. it's not just and it's not just the language it's the whole kind of emphasis quality of intention that we bring into that mm. so if i'm if i'm using the same practice vajrasattva on the crown washing down through the body with a sense of actually this is really healing nourishing re replenishing restoring it has a very different feeling to it too i've got to purify all my defilements and all my badness and mm. which psychologically is not always very helpful you know, if I've been wounded by some event like abuse or something, it's not about purifying it. It's about healing the wounding that's there and not judging it as being wrong or bad or something that to be got rid of in that way. A different, a different flavor of how we do the practice can actually serve us really well with I some of the older practices. I couldn't agree with you more. And, and you're talking about the Vajrasattva. Maybe I can maybe I can share something too, because <clears throat> you're talking about the visual element of it as a washing or a cleansing, yeah. uh, but also core to Vajrasattva are the four opponent powers. And, you know, depending on the language you use, these can be really archaic. They can be religious. They can be dogmatic. They yeah. can be self-flagellating. They can be at least perceived as self-flagellating. Yeah. Yeah. But if you're really astute and you know your own culture, and you have the creativity and you have the, you know, you've been given the permission either from the outer or inner group or, or both to find the right language to describe what the four opponent powers really are. Beginning, I mean, beginning to talk about the Buddha nature, beginning to talk about where true refuge lies, beginning to talk about emptiness, beginning to talk about taking responsibility. Those words, those yeah. are empowering, actually. Yeah. Very empowering. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So that, I mean, in a way, we're touching on an example of where if we have that psychological knowledge and we and we respect and value the fact that we have a lot of healing to do and not judge it, but hold it with a sense of kindness and compassion, then we can bring practices in that will have a different flavor to them. And to me, one of the most valuable of those practices is the practice of Mahamudra. Mm. It's very, it's a very balanced practice but it's a way of being with our internal experiences, particularly in the body, that enables them to move through, enables them to be there, to be accepted, to be allowed the space to be as they are without judgment, and then to begin to move through and heal. So practices like that, again, are unbelievably helpful for us in our psychological healing process if we, if we apply them in a slightly different way. May I ask you, Rob, about the Mahamudra? And um, yeah, you know, both of us are therapists. We've had probably conventional trainings in our therapy. Sometimes those trainings and that that modality can be rather top down. It has a lot of intellectual processing. Yeah. And when you talk about the Mahamudra, um, you know, to be to be transparent, it reminded me some somehow I was making an associative link to some of the water purifications that I'm doing in Bali now that I live there. Oh, right. The Melukata are called the, the 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 island of Bali has a water purification that is part and parcel of a thousand or two thousand years old. Mm. 
but it's not top down, it's bottom up. In other words, there's a sense that when you do these purification rituals where you, we set your intention, you enter into the water, the water uh. you know, washes over you, your mind isn't trying to do a top down understanding of your trauma. There is a kind of relinquishing that allows for a flow or a cleansing to take place. And part of it is faith. Part of it is surrender. Yeah, yeah. Part, part of it is acceptance or allowing. And, you know, these aren't often times that mean, I mean, I've done at least, I've been living in Bali for a year and I've done at least 12 of these. I've oh. made it, I've made it the mainstay of my practice in Bali, turning myself over to the, to the ritual there. And, and sometimes actually most times what happens is that there's a kicking up of disturbing emotions or kicking up of memories or kicking up of unconscious content. There can be, there can, I mean, I, in my own process, I've found that I've made regressions to childhood. I've seen images of, and memories that I haven't had uh, contact with in some time. And so when we say purification, it's not necessarily top down an intellectual pursuit or understanding. And also it's not necessarily in the moment when the water is hitting you, but there's something that allows for an activation, we would call it. Yeah. And then there is sort of a bringing the body there's an honoring of the body that if you can just allow this to work over you, there's not much more to do. It's like it has its own, it has its own intelligence, the body. Yeah, the trust is, in the process is, idea. Is there anything, am I hitting any notes to Mahamudra or or or, I, or any 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 relevance there? Yeah, I think so. I think a number of things. Um, the phrase that comes to my mind is the trust in the process bit. You know, if if we begin to work with a transformational way of practice and we hold that with that quality of, of awareness that is kind and compassionate and so on, then we need to allow the process to have its natural movement through. So to trust in that is really important. But there's another bit in this, I think, which is, um, and you, you you mentioned this, I think, the, the process of doing certain practice activates certain things in us, doesn't it? And and if we are someone that has wounding that is is potentially likely to get activated, then this is another reason why doing practices in a traditional way doesn't necessarily give us the sort of safe environment for that activation to be processed and to move through. So for example, if I'm running a retreat, if, if it was a classical traditional retreat that was a tantric retreat, you'd be doing a practice, probably reciting it with a text and so on. Things may get activated, but you don't, what do I do with this? How do I, how do I work with this? And with how the, would one work with it traditionally? I mean, if you're doing your own right. and you're doing prostrations, believe me, those things kick things up. So absolutely. Absolutely. What, what, what would have, what would have been the traditional mode of dealing or would it just be shake it off or, you know, just keep going or put your head down? Like what? I, I think quite possibly just grit your teeth, put your head down and get on with it. Hmm. If you went to the teacher, they may say, well, you know, meditate on pressure human rebirth or something. And whereas I think, from my own sense of this, in terms of the work I do in retreats particularly, it it helps really to create an environment where we recognize that the process will bring these things up. That's natural because they're part of who we are. Can we create an environment that gives a sense of safety, that if we can hold these things in a particular way with our awareness and with that sense of embodiment, then they can work their way through with support. 
the practices then act as a kind of catalyst that that we can bring in not necessarily as a liturgy that's we're an hour and a half liturgy but ways of practice that are more more contemplative more absorbed in um being with the process mm. and and for that reason for me and this was one of the things that i learned from lama yeshi lama yeshi's creativity around practices was that he would often take the complexity away come to some central ingredient which this is like the core of the heart of the deity practice and if we practice with this it will touch us in a particular way in our meditation if we can use that then it's as though we've got this transformational presence that helps that is a sort of catalyzes the process so we're we're combining yes things are arising it's being held in a certain way that feels safe uh, and and i have this means of helping it transform through the presence of the deity as buddha nature mm. you know as a as a way of practicing tantra it may not be how it was traditionally no let's no, I, I want to take that back a minute. It may not be how it's done in the monasteries. Mm. Yeah. With big texts and so on, where you're, you're, you know, you're going through that. The yogis may well have practiced it in a very different way. Right. During the four session retreats, three year retreats with four sessions a day type. Yeah. And there's that. And then if we go back further, let's go back even further. How did the Mahasiddhas of India practice this? Well, there you go. They may not have practiced it the way the Tibetans do. Yeah, the formalized monastic kind of education may have reified it in some way where it must much, much more, maybe more, more spontaneous and creative and fluid with the with the Mahasiddhas. Quite possibly, yeah. yeah. I did I did interrupt you with your um your emphasis on the Mahamudra. Do you want to take us through how it may heal some sort of trauma or how you're using it, how you're elegantly right. um mm -hmm. incorporating? Mahamudra, how you might have an um, an intervention, or you nuanced it in some way. Um, I, I think the beauty of the process of Mahamudra is part. It partly lays in the eventual spacious, open quality of awareness that's there. That, that would be classically what we might see as resting in Mahamudra. There's a process that leads towards it, and certainly, if I'm guiding this in a retreat what I'd be doing is starting from the body. So coming back into that sense of ground of the body in order to stabilize awareness, to stabilize a sense of relaxation and so on. So we're really beginning to rest loose and natural as, as Tlopa would say. And from that place, with a certain degree of steadiness, coming into the emotional process so that we're beginning to tune into the undercurrents of our emotional life, with a with a growing spaciousness that's allowing it to go where it needs to go to move to to transform we're out of the conceptual stories we're not we've dropped out of those we're, we're resting with the experience so i'm staying with the processes that in itself i think is for our psychological and emotional life unbelievably helpful mm. we're not we're not trying to do something to it make it different um, or saying this isn't okay, and we're not contracting into it. We're allowing it to be there and to move its way through, to find its potential movement towards health. So that in itself, as a, as a sort of an element of Mahamudra in the early stages, 
I think is very, very significant. I wish I'd have known that when I was a lot younger, when I was a psychological, emotional mess. <laughs> you know, I could have really done with that. So just to distinguish Mahamudra, Mahamudra is more of a formless practice, whereas the tantric deity work is filled with the archetypal imagery. Yes, yeah, and, and d- if I can just follow on what I was saying, once we've once we've rested in that awareness of the, the the processes that are arising in the body, from there we start to open into Mahamudra, open into that spaciousness. So there's an evolution with Mahamudra that, that I think all the stages are so helpful for us psychologically if we really begin to understand how they work. Hmm. Yeah. So, so one thing I'm thinking about um, is the. The nature of trauma is a is based on a fragmentation, and 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 if we're honest, that kind of trauma, whether it's developmental or complex trauma, it's it is inevitably a relational trauma. Mm-hmm. And a, a number of I've had a number of experiences observing people who come in with trauma, mm-hmm. who want to sort of use meditative practices to heal. Mm-hmm. But inevitably, one of the limiting places is that sometimes you can't do it alone. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, you're talking about some qualities of tantric practice or Mahamudra that helps heal the divide. If we're really talking about integration, you're talking about first and foremost coming back into the body. So dissociation gets healed. Yeah. And you're also talking about with the Mahamudra having faith or confidence or trust in the innate nature or quality of mind, which is, let's call it a container that allows for processing. I mean, if you can really yeah. open yeah. to the nature of your mind, mm-hmm. it can facilitate transformation mm-hmm. by its very nature. That's what I sort of understand when yeah, you're saying. Yeah, 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 yeah. But what about the relational piece? Where does it fit in? I I guess in, in my own work as a psychotherapist there was a sort of evolution that happened over year over many years you know i started i would say as a sort of jungian psychotherapist if you like and that what gradually happened was that i became more of a contemplative psychotherapist that was more embodied you know jungians are not always no criticism not always very embodied <laughs> i hate to confess yeah there's, there's a lot of mind stuff can go on with with us as jungians so the movement towards a more embodied way of being and also slowing the process down in relationship so that it was possible for me to be there to support someone coming into their experience and beginning to rest in it and observe it and enable it to move. Mm-hmm. Now, that style, I think, is not is not unusual these days. In fact, I think it's quite familiar. And there are certain particular therapeutic modalities like called process psychotherapy that is a more Buddhist orientated psychotherapy that worked with that a lot. And and things like focusing, you know, Genlin's work. Mm-hmm. So there are places where this this um sitting with the experience and being in the experience with someone is increasingly worked with, isn't it? And I and I think it's there are there are a number of things that work well in that if we can bring a level of quiet presence in in the experience for someone one is as the therapist we we don't necessarily need to do an awful lot other than just hold a sense of compassionate presence to be be there holding the space Mm. i I think also 
there's something about that has a relational impact this the, the sense of kindness that allows what's there from the other person allowing us to be with that you know really uncomfortable process but somewhere or other we're given some resonance that, that that enables us to do that as the client the the other thing i think is that how we intervene can be really subtle and rather than coming into lots of let's get back into stories as much as simply asking questions like so how is that for you what do you notice it's bringing bringing someone back into that more contemplative experience mm. so it's almost as though we're doing meditation with someone hand mm -hmm. on meditation yeah and i think that's very profound actually as a as a therapeutic modality that takes us beyond the stories and just the cognitive process and i think this would be more one, of the, one of the innovations maybe because you know maybe traditionally you would get your initiation and your instruction and you would practice in isolation or in retreat yeah. Yeah. And what we're talking about, in addition to these mutual maps, conjoining or integrating maps, we're also talking about doing much more relational work. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And and that has, I, I think there's huge potential in that in terms of how we as practitioners can bring our background experience of meditation into relationship to that sort of process really because the lamas are not always that available and the more increasing no, where they have thousands and thousands of students and they're traveling all over the place i mean yeah. some of our some of our needs aren't getting met i mean i mean cer certainly there is a difference between a lama and a therapist mm -hmm. but just if we're if we're suggesting that this kind of tantric work is healing or can be healing and one of the aspects of our trauma is the disjuncture or separation or interruption or disruption with relationship. Yeah. Then inevitably healing and having an ally that is available mm -hmm. seems to be part of the medicine. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. And I, I mean, for me, that that's where shifting away from the role of, of guru, if you like, towards mentoring is actually really important for us because there's something about that relational process that that is person-centered rather than authority-centered so it's mm -hmm. not based on the guru tells us what to do as much as how is that for you mm -hmm. just that just that phrase i'll often be working in a retreat and i might say to people so how was that meditation for you <laughs> oh yeah they haven't been asked that before and actually the response to that then becomes part of a dialogue that is looking at how do these practices work for me and and if things are happening that need to be adjusted slightly or as i share that i begin to recognize oh yeah if i if i shift this way a little bit sort of thing mm -hmm. then i'm shaping the practice in in dialogue mm -hmm. with someone and as a mentor because i do mostly mentoring these days I'm not assuming that I have all the knowledge of what they need as the authority might have. It's more something that emerges in the joint exploration of, of what's useful and, and where does this practice take you? What do you feel attuned to? And what does your psychological process need for support at this time? Yeah. So that, that relationship feels paramount, actually. 
I agree. I agree. And I like that because you're you're not suggesting that you're taking on the role of the guru. That guru has its scope of practice, as we might say. It has its own scope of yeah. authority, whereas the mentor is someone who's maybe well aware of all the intricacies of the technology, but occupies a different space and has a different kind of scope and a different mission or agenda, maybe. Yeah. Uh, yeah. to be in relation with and to be almost like an external mirror that shows the healthy level of acceptance, the safety and security, the, yeah. the the very humble prompting that allows someone to look at their own mind and inquire about their own experience. I have two follow-up questions from this before we move on. One is the, um, yep. you know, we often say that, you know, let's get out of the story, but, you know, true integration means that once you do, do the embodied processing, maybe eventually the right and left brain need to be linked up at the mm-hmm. tail end, tail mm-hmm. end of the mandala. And so a better story also mm-hmm. is helpful, yeah, you know, yeah. maybe shifting from the victim stance to the, to the agency, or, or once you've done your processing, you can start to incorporate that even the deepest wounds, the most horrific hardships, the, yeah. the, mo- the, mo- the, the longest en- enduring sense of separation. Once it's been worked through in the body, needs a better container or story to move forward into the future what what are your thoughts on that yeah i i think to some extent i think that happens organically doesn't it because we we communicate with our loved ones and and our friends and and, and that gets shaped as we do that rather than than trying to fabricate something i think it becomes a natural expression of i feel different you know something's changed and i'm feeling easier with this and so we start to to shape those stories in a way that is maybe more congruent with with how we really are rather than stories because the danger with the sort of pre-process of that um, i've got loads of stories and half of them are nonsense but you know i'm living with them whereas whereas the organic thing is is more okay yeah this is how i feel i'm responding these days and i can name it i can describe it I can communicate with friends and what have you about it. It's an organic story. It's, it's a bit different, isn't it? Mm. Good. Thank you. The other one I wanted to ask is um, more controversial. I'll throw you a curveball just to keep us on our, <laughs> keep us honest. Do you, do you ever find that people in our, you know, our students, our, our clients, they can be over-therapized, that there can be too much of an emphasis on psychological processing, that there, that somehow you can get, caught in an endless rift of of over processing and over, maybe maybe the over psychological over psychologizing of buddhism also is also yeah, yeah, poten- yeah. potential threat or danger what are your thoughts on that well yeah i i think that's a really interesting point and and um, when, when, like when is enough enough when do you know that you you've satisfied your need to to process something and when it starts getting really boring going round and round it <laughs> enough yeah i mean I, I i think it was interesting for me i was i was teaching a mahamudra retreat at the weekend and and i think that the essence or the heart of that mahamudra process was the recognition that we can process and we can do all sorts of processing and at some point we need to just let it go and and rest and drop mm-hmm. into that space that is open and enables it to move through and and maybe there's a sort of movement backwards and forwards but if we keep circulating around that one then something doesn't get deeply resolved 
And I, you know, I know that as a psychotherapist, it'd be only too easy for some people to just keep storying it. Yes. More story, more story, more round yeah. and round, more process, more processing, rather than actually stay with it, let it open, let it go, drop into that space of awareness. And and we're free, we're becoming free of it. So yes, I would agree. Yeah. I mean, I'm, that may be too simplistic for me to say that because in a way that's also not an easy practice. You know, Mahamudra is not straightforward. It is not, we can suddenly drop into Mahamudra. Um, it, it's something that has to be cultivated over time. But I do think it's worth holding it there as a, as, as a place where we can say, ultimately, let's let go of it all mm. and open to what's primordially pure. Mm you know, in our nature. And, and in a way, I I feel that the more we can honour that and trust that and allow ourselves to touch into that, the more our life becomes fluid and creative in a fresh way. Hmm. You know, so it's as though we touch back to the ground and from that ground, a creative process will naturally come back into our life because it's because that's where it comes from. As a, as a an expression of who we are, it's very it's very um, how to say it's as though when we can rest back in that and drop all of those processes because we work with them so much, then I think we have a kind of a restfulness of being, and from that restfulness of being, a, a new sense of emergence comes almost moment to moment in some senses, but in our life. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, in terms of spiritual bypassing, I've seen, I've seen yeah. my in my own life and in my, in the, my yeah. students that there can be a tendency in the initial phases to be so outward focused with your bodhisattva resolve that you're actually avoiding some <laughs> some tragedy or trauma that is just too painful. So, you, in other words, the bodhisattva emphasis yeah. becomes an excuse to be outward see outward av ever available and possibly some codependent way without acknowledging some deeper thing but i think the also the reverse is also true that once people start to do an inquiry and start to see what's in the shadow and start to process it that it can inevitably be very me focused yeah, yeah absolutely absolutely and, and and reifying of like one's you know mm. the direction of one's attention ends up getting sort of almost caught in an eddy in the personal world. And so yeah. I think, yeah, I mean, I think you have to have this kind of balance. And, and what, I mean, what I'm taking away from my question and your answer is that, you know, when you know it's, I mean, it's so subtle. It's like energy. Mm -hmm. And when energy is freed, it knows how to be deployed energy and awareness know where it needs to go. Almost like a river knows how to get to its source. So when yeah. it's not bound and it's not confined, I mean, in the early example of being out focused, it's it's being there's a resistance to the internal trauma verse and and in the other direction, there's a kind of fixation on the yeah, internal yeah. trauma. Mm -hmm. In both directions, you see the energy and the awareness constricted or confined. And what yeah. you're talking about is an indication if one pays attention. Mm -hmm that things are more or less resolved when the energy is more loose, free, naturally dynamic, and then it can be deployed or go where it needs to. Yeah, I, I would agree. I, if I could also put a slightly different perspective on that as well. I think for me, 
there's something about recognizing that these are also phases that we keep going through in the sense that um, there may be times when we need to do that inward work and we can get a bit self-obsessed in it. And if we can recognize that, then we can make the shift again and, and begin to come out. So that, that breathing in, breathing out sort of thing can also be part of the journey that we're on so that we, we're, so long as we're vigilant and don't just get a bit self-indulgent, when I, when I, I think one of the first books I wrote was a book called The Wisdom of Imperfection. And the reason I wrote that was because it was, it was a, a reflection of how, I think for me, the journey has been so much about seeing from the places where I may have made mistakes. Beautiful. And, and so got beautiful. caught up in something, but actually learned from it. Mm. And, and one of those for me would be those times when I get a bit self-absorbed, a bit self-obsessed, and I forget there's other suffering out there because I'm so caught up in my my processing. And, and that in itself is a kind of learning, isn't it? Mm. And maybe part of the learning is is to, to nourish the bit of us that is still a bit self-obsessed, but then enable it to open out. So backwards and forwards. I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't want to sort of see those as being in end goal or end places as much as part of that unfolding mm. we're endlessly going to make mistakes and get things wrong but hopefully we learn from them beautiful that, i mean since that, you, since you brought up your book do you want to do you want to tell us a little bit about your more your, your recent attempt to sort of chronologize a number of sequential books and, and bring us up to speed on the latest one <laughs> a sales pitch <laughs> Yeah, I I guess. Well, I'm sure you, each one of these, in a way, covers the facets. I mean, a develop, there's been a developmental sequence in the unfolding of your work. So, I mean, we've good, just yeah. had like an hour and a half conversation about these themes, and I'm sure the books, in a way, follow a lot of these themes. So, you know, it's a, it's a beautiful really, it's a beautiful unfolding, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Well, I hope so, and, and I hope people really benefit from them. And and there's more to go because I'm this series unfolds a bit longer. When I wrote The Psychology of Buddhist Tantra, it was my first sort of foray into bringing together Jungian Tibetan Buddhism. And I can, you know, in retrospect, I can see there's places where I might have changed that or it's evolved, my views evolved. When I wrote The um, Tasting the Essence of Tantra, it was a shift from psychology of Buddhist Tantra towards actually experience of practice. How do we practice in, in practice? and and how how we start to integrate that in a different way as a meditative process that has a lot more psychological um congruence or completely the two are coming together and out of that book really then grew um now let's put this another way around i taught a whole series of retreats that were called tasting the essence of tantra it was a module series over eight over four years of eight modules I taught it in the US and in different parts of Europe and the UK. Now, out of that really grew for me a real clear sense of the principles that I was trying to communicate, that I would put them into a book, book form, called it Tasting the Essence of Tantra. Those retreats focused also on particular deity practices and mm. particular themes. So one of them was the mandala, which I actually brought out first for some obscure reason. Then another one was on bodhicitta, heart essence particularly. I then want to, and I'm slowly working through, Chinrezi is the one that's just come out. The next one is on Vajrapani, then Tara, then Manjushri. 
I'm going through the practices that I taught in that Tasting the Essence series and going into them very deeply with a with a an, the aim of looking at how we do the practices in our meditation and what the psychological processes that are particularly relevant to those practices mm. and how we how we can use those practices if you like as a healing process mm. but also to cultivate certain potential certain capacity you know so for example the one on vajrapani is going to be a lot to do with our whole relationship to power and the shadow and and how we negotiate that sort of territory psychologically and i can imagine that this is where your jungian background really is yeah. is a wonderful counterpart because of course each of the deities have their own quality or characteristic yeah. reflective of the nature of mind yeah. um but but if, and but what you're doing is you're taking each deity from both angles the tantric yeah. the tantric yeah. i'm assuming the tantric prescription or the liturgy or the nature of the practice mm -hmm. but then also this other wonderful lens which is the you know the symbolic meta mythopoetic and also what's happening in the unconscious where it could go wrong or or yeah, what's yeah. what what may be stuck or bound in the shadow as a result so you're talking top top down and bottom up and yeah, certainly certainly yeah. embodied so, something that something that one of the people that i mentor said to me once this is like the phenomenology of tantric practice mm, beautiful. Uh, beautiful i thought that was a very you know what what's my subjective process in relationship to tantric practice and and i think that's kind of what i'm trying to bring together mm. and i give give you another example of that if we see chin raising as compassionate presence then that quality touches into all those places in our early early life from the moment of conception where we may or may not have had compassionate presence mm. so a lot of the wounding that um, is present through those early days months years of our life often reflects the absence of a certain presence of holding of compassionate holding and so on that it's been wounded and all the rest of it chenrezi as a practice can begin to re um constitute to reshape some sense of that experience if we understand how to practice in a certain way so that's the thread of that book for example and do you also discuss the role of the mentor i mean have you have you i have done i have yes. done i've done that mainly in tasting the essence of tantra in that mm. larger book so that that I, I talk about um the hazards of the guru in there as well and did uh, you did you bring in a lama to do the initiation or were you are you authorized to give all the initiations yourself how does that work exactly I've, I've been given authority to, to give the the kriya tantra initiations yeah mm. Mm. which i feel one of my tibetan mentors so i don't choose to name it Ismail, but but yeah and have you i mean i find that so fascinating because i my, my two western teachers they've been authorized but they don't they don't give the initiations they bring in the lamas to do it and um, right. Have you uh, have you made innovations, or are you to take political or poetic license in how you how do you deliver it, or do you try to do it as traditional as it as it, as it was when you received these? I I think I I have to sort of um, 
from looking at my picture of Lama Yeshe over there. No. <laughs> he's watching. He's always watching. <laughs> he's always there. That's your mirror. That's your mirror. <laughs> yeah. I, I think one of the things that I really value about his way of approaching these things is that he would often take practices, practices to, piece, to pieces and say, let's really orientate around this bit today and get an experience of it. So he wasn't he wasn't averse to saying, let's look at different ways of working with these practices and so long as we're getting the feel of it. So within the context of giving this process, what I'm tending to do is to really come back to the, the essential shape of the practice is there. I don't necessarily use always the liturgy exactly as it might be, but I'm trying to get people to experience the process of it. Mm. Yeah. So I'm, I'm guiding through the process in, in a way that hopefully brings it alive in a way that sometimes the liturgy could miss. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And it it's goes not... full circle with the beginning of our conversation. We're talking about sometimes, I mean, myself included, when I took my first initiation with Kayla Krimpache, yeah, it, it went over my head. I mean, it was just, you know, there was a language issue, but there was also yeah. such, such complexity that I couldn't, I mean, I knew it was a tremendous blessing in my heart. I had a lot yeah. of guru devotion, but on the other hand, complex. what you're talking about is, you know, what it seems like one of the nectar drops you received and really tasted and you try to pass on from Lama Yeshe was to go for experience first. I think try, to, try to make this experience accessible first. Yeah. That's the most important. Give people an experience. Yeah. Yeah. And then and then build build the the intricate mandala around it. So Absolutely. just yeah, I mean the phrase that he would use, we need to taste it. We need to get a taste. Yeah. 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 And and you know what you were saying about receiving initiations from Gellet Rimshire, they they can be overwhelmingly, what is going on here? Yes. Yeah. What's yeah. what this about? And it takes a long time to grapple with that, actually. And it? maybe years to unpack it, you know. It's yeah, like, exactly. Exactly. What, when you talked about getting it getting those you had those great llamas and then and within three four five years they were all gone yeah and you're and you're still you're still like trying to figure it all out you're yeah. still on you're still unpacking it i mean it takes exactly. years and years, and yeah. years it's a life's work isn't it well i'm conscious of your time and i wanted to just bring up one of my last remaining questions because i mean yeah. i'll try to make it as relevant to your book series as i can because it, if we're talking young we're talking about turning ourselves over to the unconscious then everything is a synchronicity nothing is inconsequential yeah. or without coincidence you did write you did suggest that the first book that you did was on the mandala and yeah. a mandala is a theme and an archetype that both you and i really are it's pivotal yeah. it's a pivotal and to young of course mm. was a pivotal archetype mm. if you look back on the series now uh, mm. can you speculate why that needed to come first before the series of the deities <laughs> I I can't. <laughs> it was weird. I think partly what it, what happened was that it was the eighth module in the series, and the 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 material in that module was so fresh and so kind of wow. This is this is exciting, you know. So I started to write it down, and it just formed very very quickly. All of that material just formed very quickly into something that was clearly an evolutionary exploration of the mandala from these two different perspectives from Tibetan Buddhism. You know. And then as it happened, someone asked me if I had the notes on it. So I said, well, here's, here's the current form of the text. And having sent it, I thought, actually, I'm going to put this into a shape that could be published. Mm. So it was, it was all there. 
and there wasn't any other profound sort of you know, <laughs> well I, I'm going to pick at it anyway because I mean yeah. as as you know I'm bringing a group with Geshe Tenzin Zopa to the Borobudur Mandala in September yeah. and it's it's I won't re- reveal too many pieces of the synchronicities that are firing off like popcorn in the lead up to that uh, right. I'm, I'm going to I'm going to disclose those in the book because it's been about a year and a half of my own turning myself over to the unconscious and the 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 Borbador mandala has featured very strongly and a lot of synchronicities have ha- have been activated around it yeah. but i but i'd love to just you know in closing our our wonderfully rich discussion which i could have endlessly with you and i'm so deeply appreciative of your time i wonder if you could just 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 sort of take us through some of the nuggets or let us taste the nectar of what came out of your Yes. You're, you're writing about the mandala. What what is it? What is it that you think Jung was trying to emphasize? What what is it that you think the Tibetan side is emphasizing? Where do they where do they meet? Where do they where do they distinguish themselves? And it's well, again a big question. Read, read the book. <laughs> <laughs> Just give us maybe a little taste, and 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 hopefully yeah. we'll, we'll magnetize ourselves towards one of those books, and particularly that one. Yeah, yeah. Um, I I suppose I'd want to begin by something I say in the book, which is that. When I was going through this thing that I described right at the beginning, this is a good way to finish, isn't it? Where I went through a bit of a breakdown. The thing that, in a sense, enabled me to to come back into some sort of cohesive way of being was drawing mandalas. Mm. And I was photographing. When I lived in a city where there were images of circular floral shapes and circular patterns everywhere, and I was out in nature a lot looking at objects that were often very circular in their nature and i would go back and paint these there was something about that relationship to images that just came that i was drawn to maybe the luminosity of them that had a healing effect and it slowly constellated this sense of maybe i'm not fragmented and falling apart maybe i'm something's becoming more whole here So that instinctual, innate sense of wholeness came from that working with mandalas. I then read Man and His Symbols, Jung's Man, you know, and he talks about the mandala and then suddenly this kind of light flash of, oh my God, that's what I'm doing. I'm working with mandalas. And from that point onwards, then I went, when I began to look at the Tibetan approach, there were these extraordinarily complex, exotic mandalas. And I just had the sense of that's probably the pinnacle of the mandala as a as a design, as a as a form that's that's painted and created. And, and I suppose over the years that relationship has grown in in both my Jungian and Tibetan Buddhist way. One of the things that I think I began to really respect about the Tibetan version of it is how complete the sense was of our totality as a as a as a configuration of all those different elements of our nature being refined into their buddha potential so the mandala of wholeness if you like was very very strongly present in is strongly present in the tibetan tradition whereas jung's view is slightly more wholeness is about um you know there's still the shadow there but it's not it's not perfect mm. it's not about perfection so there's a bit of a difference there. But the danger for me about the Tibetan form of the of the mandala is that I could then start to get very fixed on this is a very static form. 
and having painted mandalas you know it's quite a job painting a mandala it's a bit rigid it's a bit rigid exactly so there's something about the fixedness about the form of the tibetan mandala which can trip us up into believing that the mandala is a fixed form and it's really not you know the mandala is something which is fluid changing moment to moment arising and passing and and the image of it is like a sort of snapshot a moment in time so to speak and and we should see it as being something that's unfolding continually as a process mm. and i think it's that shift from these exotic beautiful forms that come into being recognizing that they are simply an expression of something that is unfolding as an expression of wholeness moment to moment and that that's what we are actually you know we are this homeostatic process that is always able to find the optimum way of being in our life if we can really allow that to be shaping us partly by letting go partly by emptiness mm -hmm. getting the ego out of the way then there is the natural natural process in us which is which is if you like moving us towards health and wholeness as a mandala as a mandala as a process rather than just this fixed form right the the journey not the destination kind of yeah and 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 that's the beauty of seeing these forms having been created is that they do have an effect on us you know for me painting mandalas has a really profound effect what was it like to go to borbador what was your experience there oh yeah yes i went in 1973 and and it was completely it was in in a sort of wasteland of scrub and bushes and it was so beautiful i remember sitting on the mandala on the the wall you know upper walls in the sunset with the sun coming down this extraordinary thing around us around me and then i went back with my wife in 19 whatever it was can't remember the date now <laughs> and we got married re right by robert or chandy mendit but the, but what they had then done to Barbador was a little bit sad because they put fences all around it and you have to pay to get in and you can only be there for a certain period of time yeah become tourist center yeah but yeah. please enjoy when you go if you haven't been or if you have been it's an awesome place isn't it i haven't been and but it's been as I, as I mentioned, it's been activated in, in dreams and synchronicities. It's, it's, it feels like it's magnetizing a group of us. I know we're going to yeah, yeah. have a beautiful joint ceremony at the top of Borbador between my Lama Geshe Tenzin Zopa, who's yeah. a student of Lama Zopa. But part of the synchronicity is that I've invited also a, a Hindu tantrika. And we oh. really want to do a kind of a joint ceremony bringing Hinduism and Buddhism together at the top of Borbador. Mm. mostly because this is based on a long-standing prophecy that after 500 years where they were split they used to be unified buddhism and hinduism in, a, in, in, a, in java in java right yeah. and and yeah. so we, we want to be participating in mm. the collective unconscious of a time period where integration is happening yeah yeah, yeah. Nice. and so it's a great symbol of what happens inside a mandala where these parts come back together again yeah, the disparate elements can be brought together yeah absolutely yeah. while you're there if you can go to Chandimendit, which is the which is a little temple nearby and the mon there's a monastery there and in that temple there are three statues i think one is of 
I think it's a Padma Pani, Pani and Vajrasapra, maybe Maitreya or something. I can't quite remember now. Yeah. We, we will go there, actually. I think I think actually there's an alignment between three temples, Mendut being one and Borobudur the other, and there's a, a clear mm -hmm. astrological line. And they say that astrological line goes to, um, I think, to Marapi. Oh. Uh, so that it, it it's some one of these sort of cosmological macrocosm microcosm lines that's linking a number of temples with a with mount meru really the mythological mount meru okay. yeah. so it's it's a it it it's one of these beautiful things where there's a lot of complexity and depth that the, these ancient civilizations had yeah um, yeah yeah. But but yes, we will definitely go there. Geshe Tenzin Zopa plans to do some Lojong teachings on the way because we're really walking in the footsteps of Atisha. So exactly. Yes. And and also Salingpa. And Salingpa, of course, yes. Yeah. 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 Great. So I've had a just a, a wonderful conversation, Rob, and I want to thank you again for your time and all your life's work and, and giving us a little taste of what it was like to be with such great lamas like Lama Yeshe, but also about you for all your innovations and your making a land bridge between traditions and cultures and disciplines so, so artfully. And I hope that your book series continues to bring a lot of benefit to other people. And I look forward to, to chatting with you and hopefully one day meeting you again in yeah, person. Yeah, be great. Thank you, Mars. I really appreciate you inviting me to do this and giving me the chance to talk about things that actually mean a lot to me. This is very dear to my heart, I guess. It, it shows. It comes, it comes across that way, Rob. So thank you so much and take good care. Thank you, and you. All the very best. Enjoy your trip to Barabadur. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Wisdom Keeper podcast. If you've enjoyed this presentation of sacred knowledge, kindly like, subscribe, review, and share our podcast and video series on YouTube with your network so that more people can benefit from these teachings and together we can create a brighter future. If you're interested in my online courses, our community membership, and pilgrimages I lead, consider visiting the Contemplative Studies program at gradualpath.com. Until we gather again, all best wishes.